0: So I'm going to get right into it. I will give you some context, but I will tell you the title of this message, and it is entitled Real and Unreal. And if you're actually into philosophy, I'm sure there's a number of things you might have read that was people grappling with this idea of what's real, what's not real. But that is... It will become more apparent why I chose such a title, but that is the title to put... I I love to preach in context, and I will tell you that... If you have been with us for, I would say, over a month, well, actually probably a lot longer than a month because it was one of Clayton's unfinished series or broken up and uh, partially completed series, I'm sure. But he preached a series on the king's kingdom and the king's bride. There were at least four parts that I can remember. And then last week, Ken preached a message entitled Sense of the Unseen, and the message I hope to impart to you today is relates to both. And if you've listened to all of that, you will probably see a little bit why. But I'm going to start with the kingdom of God. Not that you haven't heard anything about the kingdom of God. Not that you don't in some way live as part of the kingdom of God. But just to set a foundation. And some of you have already heard. So if what I actually expect, believe it or not, is that if i'm truly speaking of things of the spirit and you have that just as much as i do that i should be saying something that at some level you say yeah of course why not because you get revelation just like i do so be it review i trust that we're all operating by the same source of truth so the kingdom of god and you hear this a lot and I'm gonna start with Colossians 1:13, and it's we've said it you've heard it but this really does point not only to where we're gonna begin but also to where we're gonna end and it says Colossians 1:13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins I love this verse it speaks many things and you know I am an attorney and it's not because it uses the word conveyance. That is a legal term. It does speak to a transfer, and typically in regards to ownership. So there are legalities involved, but that's not why. There are, are a few things that are involved in this. As number one is that it's a kingdom. It's a royal rule and reign. And that is very unlike opposition that is in opposition to the kingdom that deals more with authority. And I said this is the beginning of where we're going to start, but it also speaks to the end, and I will tell you where we're going to end is with the blood. None of this has happened. No redemption, no salvation, as great as we can even imagine and entertain, none of this actually could happen but for his blood. And it just says it as plainly as you can imagine, right there. And that's one of the reasons why I love this verse. So it raises an interesting specter, of course, that there was this conveyance, this legal transfer of ownership. Even that idea within Christianese doesn't sound so appealing. What do you mean I'm not like the owner of me? What do you mean I'm not the boss of me? That's kind of a scary prospect, but that's just the reality of the faith. But it does set in motion a couple of ideas that we have to grapple with, and this is part of the reason why I'm speaking about this, because we live in a very confusing time. It's a very strange time. And here you are as a Christian, and you are legally transferred and conveyed into this royal rule and reign called the kingdom of the son of his love, and yet you still have a passport of a country, most of which is here the United States of America. So you have a citizenship of a country, and yet you are a member of a kingdom, an ambassador, if you will and I'm not here to say it's dual citizenship because that would be very inaccurate and inarticulate but it does put in motion a reality of how do you actually do this thing called living because there are conflicts that are actually going to be imputed into your life and one of those is Romans 13 verse 1 says let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, I read that as like, and I said to my wife, I said, yeah, that's kind of an inconvenient thing, what it said at the end, that authorities that exist are appointed by God, and I had to kind of work that on out, and, you know, just to say that, you know, there are the people in the position, but then there's the position itself, and the position itself, which represents an authority structure, was appointed by God, don't get hung up on the person in a position, they will be held to account so you are in submission to governmental authorities and I said you're still trying to work this out and John 17 verse 15 says this I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep or guard them from the evil one so you're in the world and we know it but you're not of the world of its character of its spirit so here now I just said to you some very basics just to set the stage and here's the playing field that you are playing in there is a kingdom it extends from the heavenly throne there are civil governing authority structures of which you are in submission and ought to be praying for and there's also spiritual opposition Ephesians 2 verse 2 says it's the prince of the power of the air the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience there's opposition and as we kind of know and experience the civil governance can be influenced by the spiritual and the ideal of course would be that the civil governments of which we are to submit are actually embodied and empowered by the spirit of the kingdom but that need not be so we would be so blessed if that was true but it need not be so and I'm sure I'm stirring up within you some very strong passions about what exactly, on the scale of who's actually empowering the civil governing authorities in the localities and the nation in which we live, exactly where are we on that scale? I'm not here to tell you that and discuss that. I'm just saying that that's just what is. And this brings attention, if you will, in how you see yourself operating now in the world, not of it, but still having to make sense of what, at some level, doesn't make any sense. That's my introduction. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Page two, if I can can turn there. So the question now becomes, after laying a groundwork, how do you actually operate now in this world? On this playing field that I just laid out for you, which I hope I did not find much disagreement in your hearts, And we know, because there's books written on this, that a battleground is waging and that battleground is here. Proverbs 23, 7 says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And that's why this is the battleground. I think about this a lot, not because I dwell upon it, but it's just the reality because we do face opposition the spirit Of opposition, working in the sons of disobedience. And and so we have an enemy. I'm sure I'm not surprising you, because if you're living in this life, you face opposition. And this enemy, as I think about and try to contextualize this enemy, has a very familiar game plan that's been refined over thousands of years to prey on the affections of your heart. You might feel like you are well-skilled, well-disciplined, well-able to counteract and defend against the schemes of the evil one. But if I can be very honest with myself, which I try to be, maybe not always, but I try to be, the enemy is really good at what he does. It's refined techniques preying on the affections of humans every day for centuries and millennia. And while that might sound somewhat daunting that you're playing in an unfair game, you do have something called the spirit without which, without reliance upon, without dependence upon, absolutely puts you into that category of being in an unfair fight. You have not even brought a knife to a gunfight. You have not brought anything at all. Because the very thing that you brought is actually his tool of his weaponry. So I'm not painting a very pleasant picture, I'm sure, but I'm hoping to place you in a a position of what we all face, which is sometimes confusing, sometimes disorienting, and this is the life that we live. And as an example of that, thinking about the playing field, I'm going to provoke you even more, because I'm going to talk about some real issues that are as common and as everyday as we can imagine, and if I were to talk about a term called fake news that would now elicit in you a lot of emotion a lot of opinion a lot of maybe even consternation because of what you feel is some from some indignation that starts to rise up in you of a term like fake news. And when I said that the enemy's really good with what he does can I tell you that even the fact that you feel some of what you feel is in part part of the game. You see, I'm just starting to play chess, just to get very personal about it. You say, wow, you really just now started to play chess. Well, partly because when I wanted to play chess, I didn't have anybody to play against. But now you can play against computers and other people on computers. So I'm trying to learn. And my whole goal, quite frankly, is to learn enough so that I can beat Michael Grenfell, who's eight years old. (laughs) Okay, that's kind of like apparently my goal. Right, everybody tells me, you know, he's really good. So you you really got to start working and learning and and growing as a chess player. So Michael Grenfell, if you listen to this, I'm coming after you. (laughs) So in my very limited and brief experience, what I can tell you is that what I've learned of chess, which I'm sure you're starting to appreciate, there are things called novices, and then there's like the people below that. That's kind of me. (laughs) But the one thing I can say I've learned about chess is this, is that the attack that you're facing on the board is not necessarily the attack. The attack leads to the real objective, which if it's not seen, well, who's going to win? Michael Crenfell. that's who's (laughs) going to win. So you see the issue with an issue like as very real and very personal as fake news is that's not even the issue. Because when people think about fake news, they think about, well, is it true or is it false? That's not even really the issue. So I, I, was, I was reading this book. I'm not gonna tell you what book it is or who the author was, but I'm gonna read something that's been rattling around in my head. But I've been reading some things just written by visionaries, because I just appreciate visionaries because it's a gift that they see, look into the future, and they see what is to come and what could be and what the issues really are. And, and this is a quote. And if you know it, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll give you a challenge later on. It says, in regard to propaganda, the early advocates of universal literacy in a free press envisaged only two possibilities. The propaganda might be true or it might be false. They did not foresee what in fact has happened, above all, in our Western capitalist democracies, that the development of a vast mass communications industry concerned in the main neither with the true nor the false, but with the unreal, the more or less totally irrelevant. In a word, they failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. And lest you think this was written in our modern day, what you can think of as an instantiation of mass communication and social media, it was not. This was written in 1958. And my challenge to you, if you've read the book, know who wrote this, and know the quote, tell me after the service, I'll buy you lunch. We'll have a conversation. (laughs) What it speaks about is not, the issue is not, with respect to fake news, is it true, is it false? And both can be used for propaganda purposes, by the way. Even half-truths are very powerful. Let me tell you, I know. But the issue, and the real issue, is real, Unreal. As I said, this was written in 1958. If the author could actually envision what we see today, he would say, nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Because what affects the fascinations of the heart of unreality is a far bigger issue than true versus false. We do not live in reality in Fairfax, Loudoun County, if you want to think about basic statistics and what the norms are. But the affections of the heart that tend to the unreal is a far greater issue in the battleground of the mind. Unless you think I'm just talking about entertainment, oh no. I'm talking about some of the most basic motivations that people have living in a society of the West envisioning for themselves an ideal that is not real. Over the past weeks, as you know, we've had in the past, I have been dreaming of the perfect steak. <laughs> I got one amen. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> the perfect steak is unreality, let alone the perfect ideal of my family, the perfect ideal of my vision for my personal calling. There are whole hosts of levels of unreality that I can deal with and has nothing to do about true or false. So the real actual battle in this game is real and unreal, hence the title of my message. So this has been rattling around my brain. I'm just giving you context of how I'm, why I'm even saying what I'm saying. And I'm sitting alone in, you know, in the morning at my kitchen table. And you can flash the picture that I have up there. And I'm looking at this at my table. And this thought enters into my head. I'm trusting by the Spirit. And I felt the Spirit say to me, this is, you know, as I'm pondering this visionary's quote of real versus unreal, and I felt the Spirit say, this is the most real thing This, right there, sitting right in front of you, is the most real thing that you can actually entertain. I'm like, hmm, I think I'm gonna have to try and unpack this, and that's what we're gonna do now. So, and by the way, we are gonna do communion at the end. So if you're listening online, get ready, we're gonna do it. And I was so delighted, actually, when Ken preached last week, And he did communion. And he was talking about how they do communion at night. I'm like, (laughs) I got, pardon me, I got excited. I tried to do it in the morning. But I I, I got excited because I felt like I wasn't, like, that far off. And maybe God's putting his finger on something here. And if he is, I want part of that. So thank you, Ken. That was awesome. (laughs) Okay. So what is Real. Okay, we're just gonna go, re- we're gonna read the Bible, because much better ideas than mine. Matthew 28, 11. Let's start at a little bit at the beginning here, right? Because now, while they were going, this is after, so okay. The context, of course, was Jesus was crucified. He died, and the, and the religious leaders were very concerned that, about the deception that could come if the disciples stole the body. So you secure the two, right? Because the deception could be worse, even worse. So Matthew 28, now, while they were going, Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Fake news, right? <laughs> 2,000 years ago. So you remember when I said, you know, you think you know the game? Well, the enemy's been playing this game for quite a while, and he's way better at it than you are. The principles of which are going to be attacked have changed. That's called people. But the ones that are attacking, they haven't changed. They're just really good and refined at what they do. Imagine, imagine, if you will, you have a career, a calling, a focus, and your whole job was to improve, and you had 2,000 years to improve. I think you'd be pretty darn good at it. And then you apply that to a novice who's unaware of your schemes, and what do you think the result's going to be? Yeah, that's the game you're playing. See, the real issue was not the news. Fake. Was it re- did he really rise? I mean, you know, we can't let people know. Because, I mean, there's re- religious political motivations that revolved in this plan that they had concocted. But that actually wasn't really the issue, as certainly at the place that, of which we stand. See, the real issue was this 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. That's the real game that we're talking about. You know, See, the, the plan that was concocted to create fa- fake news and to spread that, there certainly was going to be impact, which is in the time of the day with the religious leaders, because they were facing religious and political loss, because if more people started to gravitate to the sect, then obviously their positions become less secure in the context of the religious-political system of the day. And that is for sure an impact, but is that's not the real issue. You see, in, at a very basic level, we can read this statement, and there are very <laughs> theological reasons why this is so important. And... I'm not to say that they aren't. You know, things like, if Jesus didn't rise, if Christ was not risen after he was crucified, prophecies would have gone unfulfilled and scriptures would be broken. That's a problem. That's a problem, right? Even bigger problem. If Christ had not risen, then Jesus' claims about himself are false. That would, that would be a typical apologetics type of argument. And that also is a big problem because I don't see a lot of people lining up to, known, to follow known liars. If we do, then, well, we got bigger problems. But here, we all are rational people, right? Somebody got my joke. Okay. So, yes, all those, all those reasons... Are perfectly legitimate, and need to be understood as part of your theology. Okay, but let me get to a more basic reason why. If Christ had not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Okay, and to understand that, we need to talk about the atonement. And I'm I'm happy that this has been part of a discussion. Even last night, if you hear the encounter night, I mean. Clayton could have preached like 60% of a message in five minutes, so that tells you what kind of talent I have, right? So Leviticus chapter 16 talks about the Day of Atonement, which is perfect for us to talk about right now because coming out of the fast, because as Clayton preached about fasting and the notion of afflicting your souls, it was exactly what the people, the nation, actually had to undergo in the Day of Atonement. So we can relate to that. But a couple things, and I'll have a couple uh, parts of uh, scripture to read. Leviticus chapter 6, starting at verse 2. It says, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Continuing on in verse 12. Says Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. This was the day of the atonement, the high priest, not just any time. So if you kind of followed along and you're the high priest, okay, uh, it gets really practical and real. Wrong day, I die. If I bring the censer of incense and it doesn't kind of cloud over the mercy seat, I die. If I sprinkle, because I'm like really under pressure now, and I, I know I, if I misstep, I die. And I've got to do this seven times, so I'm counting. One, two, don't miscount. And I do six, I die. And then there's you relying on other people. What if the blood's no good? Because it was from an animal that had a blemish. I die. So appreciate, if you will, that out of this whole sentiment, you know, many rules and regulations came to ensure that the high priest didn't have a misstep. And I'm, I'm not going to get into that. It was an annual ritual. It was a very serious affair with very, as serious of a consequence as you can imagine. And it was to, the high priest had to atone for, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. That's what the atonement, Day of Atonement was about. But what I want you to understand in the context of what I want to talk about today is that this whole system, the earthly tabernacle, in and of itself is a shadow. It's a shadow. Hebrews 8 verse 4 says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. A copy and a shadow. A shadow is not real. Just Think about those words. Just a shadow is not real. The original casts a shadow, but when you look at the shadow, it's not real. And there's a point to everything I just said right there is that what was done, what God made provision for, what he showed Moses on the mountain to actually produce as part of their everyday culture and an annual affair that had very important intentions of how God related to these people via the old covenant, it still wasn't real. You see, there was a real. And there were heavenly things that were real. In Romans Chapter 4, verse 24, it says this. It shall be imputed to us, and this is referring to righteousness. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. This is now the roadmap for the rest of what I'm going to talk to you about. You see, in... When Jesus, we, we kind of know this, you've probably spoken about this if you shared the gospel with people, and, and when Jesus was about to give up his spirit, he, he says, it is finished, and that word is tetelestai, and actually has an accounting implication, but what it basically you could say it means is that the debt was now paid. Oh, somebody had to die. Sin and justice required it, and Jesus as our substitute paid the price of which we did not pay. So his death, in a sense, satisfied by justice or even the accounting of sin and iniquity to die. And most gospel messages are very heavy on that aspect of what Jesus did. Less in the context of justification is it spoken of as resurrection? Now, I understand resurrection is quite important for many of the reasons we already talked about. And resurrection is oftentimes looked at more from the perspective of sanctification. But here it says he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So we're going to look at that. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 says but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation now we're talking about real things not unreal things see the heavenly tabernacle is the original of the copy the heavenly tabernacle is the original of which produced a shadow that was actually existent with the people under the old covenant. One was real, one not so much. And only when we can understand that and see the reality of that, can you actually understand what it means for Jesus to be raised before for because of our justification. How? following verse in verse 12 it says not with the blood of goats and calves but with his own blood with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption this is the real tabernacle the heavenly things This is not the shadow. This is not the copy. This is the whole point. I'm going to read on, and then I'm going to kind of land this thing. In Hebrews 9, verse 23, it says this. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves With better sacrifices than these for christ has not entered the holy places made with hands which are copies of the true but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god for us not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now once at the end of the ages, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifices, by the sacrifice of himself. That's just the Bible. Now let's talk about what it's really saying about justification. And this is the whole point of why I'm talking about this. We talked about the copy. We talked about the shadow. That's not even real. And appreciate for a second the context of that to understand the true, the real. See, earthy tabernacle, which was the shadow once a year, the nation is fasting and afflicting their souls. There is a high priest. And he has to offer sacrifice for his sin first and then for the sin of his people. And the entire nation, as they're afflicting their souls, is looking to the tabernacle and trusting that the high priest doesn't misstep and actually reappears from behind the veil. Because only then can they know that the blood in a sense to cover their sins for that year was accepted If he did not appear, problems. But he brought the blood of bulls and goats to sprinkle on the mercy seat. And success of that mission once a year meant they had attained mercy. That's the shadow. Now. Think of the real. (sighs) I I knew this was going to be difficult. Imagine the real, the multitudes of heavenly hosts wrapped with attention in the heavens. The son of glory, who stepped down from glory, suffered indignity, all temptation, all suffering has now returned. And he comes now with his own blood to be sprinkled before the very throne of God once for all time. And upon the sprinkling of his own blood, the Father, for all those who believe, has now declared them righteous. That is what justification is, my friends. In the very courtroom of heaven, of the one son of his love the one of which he swore i will make you priest forever in the order of melchizedek for you and on the basis of the blood that you now sprinkle before the throne of god because of that the father has declared you me all who have belief of the one who has now our high priest, he has declared you righteous. That is a declaration from heaven of which you had no part to play other than to believe, but it is a declaration over your life that you are now justified. You are righteous. And that is the reality of the blood. In Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says this. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified you are justified and you are being sanctified but that justification was performed on your behalf by your high priest who was raised to present his own blood in the courtroom of heaven and on the basis of that sprinkling you are declared righteous And just lastly, in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, it gives you the concluding picture. It said, "But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant." And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood is there. The blood of sprinkling is there. And it will ever, forever speak on your behalf that you have been declared righteous, that you are now justified. And that is the real. And everything that you can conjure up to detract from that truth that exists in the very court of heaven, the blood of sprinkling, now you can understand why they say and they say that his blood speaks a better word. It will never be removed. And because it can never be removed, your justification can never be questioned. And that is the reality of your faith. So, now taking communion is very simple. If you would, there should be a communion cup in the seat right in front of you, on the the, uh, wire rack. I probably will need one. We're gonna take this together if you're at home take it with us. The most real thing that I know. Representing what is yours, what is mine, what is for us and all who believe. Lord, we honor you our high priest. You are our high priest forever. You have paid our debt and your blood speaks on our behalf forever before the Father. This blood of sprinkling on our behalf. And we just say, thank you. Thank you. I was remiss in actually doing this, and I don't want to forget about it. If out of what was spoken today was new to you or brought clarity and understanding, and you weren't sure or didn't even understand what it meant to be a believer, I would like to invite you up after the service. Uh, We will pray with you. And it's very simple for me to describe if that's you. You will know because something in you is just resonating with a truth that you did not previously possess. It just will resonate in you, and you'll just know. Don't overcomplicate it. This is God's gift to you. All we do is try and understand and make clear. That's all. But I do want to thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Josh just to close it up. But, Amen.